let me try that one more time. Good morning. All right. Hey, a lot of us are off camping and doing stuff. In fact, Kim and I have been camping with our boys all week in Yosemite. Let me make sure I got that on. Yeah. Oh, it helps if I put it on. There we go. We've been in Yosemite National Park in California all week, and we had a great time. Uh, we loved all the mountains and the waterfalls and all those things. We didn't so much love all the crowds, and we did not enjoy the gas prices. You know what we paid for gas out there in Yosemite National Park in California? $4.81 for a gallon of gas out there. I'm like, oh, wow. But uh, it's good to be back and be home in Colorado. You know, as Joel was talking at the end of that song, um, I'll just tell you something. This morning, as I showed up to church, I saw a gentleman and his wife sitting in the truck out in the parking lot, and something just seemed like maybe they were not doing well. Something was wrong, and I walked up and talked to him, and, and uh, he was actually having seizures. He's uh, struggling with uh, MS and was dealing with some seizures and needed help, and we ended up getting a paramedic, uh, getting them to come in an ambulance, and some police officers were here. But as we talked... Um, and, and as I just prayed with them, uh, they, they were quick to be able to thank us for that. But I could just tell, looking in their eyes, that what we just sang about, God, you're so good, I'm healed, I'm whole, I'm uh, saved by your name, and those words of that song, would probably not have resonated with them. They were kind of like, I don't know about that. They only pulled into the parking lot because he started having a seizure and didn't know where else to pull over. Knew it was not safe to drive. Had to stop. And I felt like it was a great opportunity by the Lord presented to me to share the gospel with them and just talk with them and talk about Jesus' love. And so I did that with them and, and kind of a sparkle like, maybe, maybe that makes sense. We're not sure. You know, anyway, and I hope that they'll be back. We'll see. But um, as... As uh, the paramedics showed up, then the, the police officers were with them as well. They actually got here uh, first. And one of the police officers I recognized, she's from, uh, from our area here, Woodland Park. The other one was brand new, uh, another young lady. And I said, I don't think I know you. And so we talked a little bit. And come to find out, uh, she's only been a police officer for two months, just fresh out of the academy. And um, I don't remember, but as Kent and I were standing there talking with her, uh, Faith came up and she talked about how she doesn't go to church. She grew up Catholic, but doesn't go to church anywhere because, well, partly because her mother had cancer three or four years ago and she kind of felt like God wasn't there. And her husband especially feels that way and has completely turned his back on God because about the same time, three or four years ago, his father died of a heart attack. And this young man was not able to be there when his dad died or see him or talk to him before his dad died. And he's kind of like, well, God totally dropped the ball, dropped me in the middle of all that. God is not good. You know, I didn't talk about this song that we just sung. But if I had, I think he would have, if he'd have been there, been like, no, I'm not singing that. I don't believe that. God is not good. Um, I'm not healed. I'm not whole. I'm not saved by his name. None of those things made sense or would have made sense if he had been standing there. But as we talked for, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes standing there, able to share some stories and thoughts, um, I think the young police officer lady came to a place of going, you know what, maybe I should look at this differently. And I invited her to, uh, to or ask, and whatever, encouraged her to a, uh, a church that I know of that's a sister church of ours down close to where she lives in the Springs, and she said she would go. And uh, maybe her husband might at some point as well. 
But you know, we need to look for opportunities. Look for opportunities to share Jesus' love with other people. In fact, that's some of what I want to talk to you about this morning. You know, but before I get into that, let me tell you this. While I was preparing for this message, knowing that I was going to be in California for a week, um, I ran across an article that I thought was interesting, and it's all about what the United States Geological Survey, USGS, um, has talked about, and that is that there is a better than, let's see, 60% chance that a magnitude 6.7 or greater earthquake will hit L.A. in the next 30 years. 60% chance. In fact, in San Francisco, the chance is more like 72% or higher that that is going to happen. You see, the last big one, if you will, in the L.A. area was in 1857, and the USGS recently projected that if such a quake were to strike the same area again, that at least 2,000 people would die Maybe as many as 50,000 would have to go to the ER. Economic losses would be well over $200 billion. Um, and the scientists go on to explain that the San Andreas Fault there near L.A. ruptures once every 150 years or so. And it's been 162. So they are overdue. Every day that passes, they are one day closer and the fact that no one knows when the next big one will hit does not change the inevitability that it is very likely to happen at some point. You know, therefore, experts are warning residents to prepare today for what might happen tomorrow. In a similar way, when Kim and I uh, got married and five years later um, got pregnant, actually she got pregnant, I just helped a little bit, but anyway, when that happened, uh, we were given a due date by a doctor, but we did not know exactly when Ethan would be born. Um, but we trusted that he would happen. That even though we didn't know exactly the date, we believed that it would happen. Well, in a similar fashion to that, or believing that an earthquake is going to happen when you live on the San Andreas Fault, Paul, the apostle, uses similar thought with a much greater inevitability, a much more important inevitability, when he talks about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Similarly, Jesus said this in Matthew 24. He said, No one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, referring to Himself, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the second coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the second coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch. Keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. You know, unlike the unpredictable but exciting moment of a child that's born, you know, if you're a mom and dad or you remember that time when, when that day came for you, you're excited, you're looking forward to that. Unlike that kind of 
unexpected or unpredictable date. The unexpected and unpredictable date of when Jesus returns a second time will be terror for those who are not ready. And we need to understand and think about this. You see, to ignore Jesus' second coming is kind of like, you know, Californians ignoring the potential of another big one that is going to happen at some point. The bad news is that for millions and millions of Americans, in fact, probably billions of people around our world, when Jesus returns a second time, it will be a scary moment. The good news is it doesn't have to be for any of us. And that hopefully before any of us leave this room today, if any of you are like, I don't know if I'm really prepared or ready, hopefully you can walk out of these doors today, or you, uh, you definitely can, and hopefully you will choose to do what you need to do to say, I'm ready. And if the Lord comes, you know, this afternoon or next week or anytime soon, I'm ready. I'm okay with that. But beyond being ready personally, we need to all understand that we have an opportunity a responsibility, you could even say, but I would say an opportunity is the best way to look at it, to share this truth, this good news with others who desperately need to know that as well, who are, who are not prepared, who are not ready, don't even realize the inevitability that is coming their way and what it means for them. We need to be prepared in all these ways. You know, C.S. Lewis, great author and speaker who's now home with the Lord, long ago once said this, if individuals live only 70 years, then a state or a nation or a civilization, which may last for a thousand years, is more important than the individual. But if Christianity is true, then the individual is not only more important, but incomparably more important, for he is everlasting while the life of a state or civilization compared with his is only a moment. I mean, if a country, the United States or any other country, were to last a thousand, maybe even 10,000 years, that's never happened. But even if it did happen for some nation to last that long, that's still of a blink of an eye compared to every single one of us in the room. Because we are going to live forever, one place or another. And it's our privilege and our opportunity to not only accept Jesus, but to share that good news and that truth with others as well. You know, given the eternal significance of individual lives, another uh, man who is now also with the Lord, Henry Nouwen, his observation is really cool as well. He said this, looked upon from above, our years on earth are not simply chronos, but kairos, which is another Greek word for time, which is the opportunity to claim for ourselves the love that God offers us from eternity to eternity. You see, chronos, which is where we get our English word chronology, um, is quantitative, whereas kairos is qualitative. The former measures the years of our lives, the length of them, whereas the latter focuses on the life within the years. It's not necessarily the length of them, it's the quality of them. And I think we need to remember the fact is that we don't know when the big one will strike. Just like a mom doesn't know when that child will be born. Just like none of us know when Jesus will return a second time. But we are wise to believe that the inevitability of these things is exactly that. That it is going to happen. Here's also what we know. We know that we only have today 
to make decisions about tomorrow. And we only have today to help other people who desperately need to know the truth of Jesus to, to learn and prepare for tomorrow. And we are one day closer to eternity today than we ever have been before. So while all of this could be scary news or bad news, it can also be great news, exciting news, because we are one day closer to eternity with heaven, with the Lord in heaven, in perfection. I love how C.S. Lewis also famously said this once. I just love this quote. He said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. We need to learn to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's Matthew 6, what Jesus said. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you as well. So the question then becomes, how do we aim for heaven? How do we do that? How about, can I just throw out an idea? How about seeking to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? I love that phrase. I don't know if you've heard it before. Maybe you've heard me talk about it or maybe you've read it in the Bible. But it was said of only one person ever in Scripture. Um, and that was David, King David. Said to be a man after God's own heart. And I think if we want to prepare for Jesus' second coming appropriately, we need to all seek to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. And that got me to thinking as I was preparing for this message before leaving on vacation what does that mean? What does that look like? How do you prepare for such things? How do you try to become a, a person after God's own heart? Well, let me show you a little bit about what I learned and what I came to understand through this. First of all, let me show you how uh, Scripture says that David was a man after God's own heart. It happened. He was still a young guy. He was not yet king. The, the first king of Israel was a man named Saul who started out doing well. He was a king who honored God. He was doing a lot of things well, but then he started making poor choices and going down a bad path. And as God had warned that that would happen. And so God sent a prophet um, named Samuel to come and to, to tell Saul what was about to happen. And here is what Saul heard from Samuel. He said, you acted foolishly. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom, Saul, will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So Saul at that point begins to get very jealous, very paranoid, and a lot of bad things happen downstream from that point forward. But let me, show, let me skip way ahead to the other time that David is called a man after God's own heart. This is in the book of Acts, written by Luke, who also wrote the book, the Gospel of Luke. And uh, Luke recorded this. After removing Saul, he, meaning God, God made David their king. And he, God, testified concerning David. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Why? Because he will do everything I want him to do. He will do everything I want him to do. I spent some time thinking about that, meditating on that, going, all right, so what does that look like in the practical world? To do everything God wants you to do. All right, that's, that's a pretty broad statement. But that's what meant that David would be called a man after God's own heart. And I thought, well, okay, can we look for some examples in David's life? So I've been scouring through God's Word 
with Chad in particular, our youth pastor, we've been going through the Old Testament, reading through it together. And um, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you see a bunch of examples about David doing things that are very God-honoring. And so I started putting together a list of the, the things that I saw that maybe would lead God to say, that, that there is a man after my own heart. Because he, and here are the things that I saw David doing. First of all, I saw David being very full of faith and boldness. You probably know the story of David and Goliath. This is before he was king. He was just a young shepherd boy. And this giant Goliath was, was saying terrible things about God and about his people. And, and everybody was afraid of him. But David said, why, would, why do we need to be afraid? He comes at us with, with javelin and spears and all that. And he's a giant, all that, yes. But we don't have to fear him because we've got God on our side. And so he not only was willing to fight him, the Bible says he ran to the battle. I love that part of the story. He literally ran to face Goliath. He ended up defeating him with his, you know, his slingshot. And then he ended up taking Goliath's own sword and chopping the giant's head off and all of that. David was full of, I know it's kind of, you know, whatever. But, uh, you know, he was full of faith and boldness. He was an incredibly... Uh, a bold young man. Maybe that's part of why he was called a man after God's own heart, uh, full of faith and boldness. But secondly, he was quick to repent. There was a story, you probably know this, I mean, because David was called a man after God's own heart in spite of the fact that he was far, 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 far from perfect. You might have heard the story of Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba um, David committed adultery because, first of all, he was lazy as a king. When other kings were off going to war, David, was sta- he stayed home and he stood up on his rooftop and he saw a naked woman bathing and he lusted after her, he called for her, he slept with her, oops, they got pregnant. Um, so then he lied about that, tried to cover all that up, was unsuccessful with that, and so he decided the best thing to do was to murder her husband. So he had it set up to have him killed. His name was, her, was Uriah. He was, he was killed by David's instructions, and all kinds of terrible things happened in that story. David was obviously far from perfect, and yet he was still a man after God's own heart, partly because of his reaction to that when God called him out on that. He sent a man named Nathan, a prophet, to come and tell David a story. Basically, Nathan told him a story about this other guy, fictitious guy, who only had one little sheep, and this other man who had a whole bunch of sheep, and the one man with just one sheep was there, and he loved his sheep. This other guy had some company come to him, and he wanted to throw a party and, and uh, you know, kill the, the, the calf and, and have a feast and all that. But instead of taking one of his many he went to the guy that only had one, and he stole that one from him and, and took that sheep and slaughtered it and had a party and whatever. And, and David was like, who's that guy? Who is that guy? He needs to pay for that. That's, that's horrible. And Nathan said, David, you're that guy. Well, unlike a lot of us, instead of getting defensive and going, whoa, back off, hey, you know, mind your own business or any of that kind of thing, I mean, he could have even had Nathan's head, but instead, he was quick to repent and say, oh, you're right. I am so wrong. And he wrote Psalm 51, an incredibly beautiful, repentant psalm, psalm about his, his need for forgiveness and asking God to create in him a clean heart and restore the joy of his salvation in him. And, and I thought, well, maybe that's, that's probably part of why God called him a man after his own heart, because David was so quick 
to lean in that right direction. Similarly to that, he was quick to trust and obey. Did anybody grow up in a, in a, in a much more conservative, older church where you sang out of a hymnal? Maybe you sang the song, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's one of the many songs I grew up memorizing and, and singing and enjoying. And you know, as I think about that, that was David. David was quick to trust and obey. Over and over, as I read Scripture, I see David coming to, to crossroads, to wise in his road where he could go one way or the other, and his default seemed to always trust, to be to trust God, to walk with God, to obey God. It's an awesome example he set for us. We should be more like that. Again, that's to be a man after God's own heart. I see that. How about the humility and self-sacrifice we see? Again, David was flawed. He was not called a man after God's own heart because he was perfect. He made a lot of mistakes. In fact, another time that he made a mistake, he took up a census. It's kind of a longer story, but basically he was not supposed to do that. God didn't want him to. He did it anyway, and God sent punishment upon the people. An angel of death came, and, and then we read this in 2 Samuel 24. Look at this. I love this about David. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. David was quick to not only repent, but to even humbly say, Look, let it be me. Take my life if need be. I'll take a bullet for the others if necessary, because it's not even their fault. This is my fault. Incredibly humble. Incredibly Christ-like. A lot like Jesus in many ways. But the one story or one thing that we see play out in David's life that I've seen at least three different places I want to show you briefly that really stood out to me is his quickness to show compassion and mercy. I think, more than anything, the reason David was called a man after God's own heart was because he was quick to show compassion and mercy when given opportunity or the situation when it came his way over and over and over. First of all, there's a story in 1 Samuel 24. The short version is this. King Saul, who I told you about, trying to kill David because David has now been anointed as the next king, and Saul's insanely jealous about that and paranoid, so he wants to hunt, and hunt down and kill David. Not that David's ever done anything wrong to him. In fact, Saul's like conflicted, like, oh, David, you're awesome. I love you in this and that way, but I still want to kill you because you're supposed to be the next king, and I don't like that. So, Saul and his army kept chasing David. David had opportunities to kill Saul, but he chose not to because he respected the position of king and chose not to. At one point, as Saul's army was closing in on David and David's army, David and his ragamuffin band, small group of men, hid back inside of a cave, thinking they'll just hide and let Saul's army pass. Well, what do you know Saul does? He comes to that, king, or that, that cave and decides to use it as a latrine. It's his now restroom, and he... The king comes into this cave, not knowing that David's in the deeper part of the cave back there. And so Saul comes in and does his business. And while there, David's men say, now's your chance. Kill him right now. Be done with this. David, no, 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 I'm not doing that. But he does come up and with a knife, take a little piece of Saul's cloak. Uh, the king is in the cave and he takes a little piece of that. The king finishes thinking he's alone and off he goes still hunting David. And then we read this, verse 8 of 1 Samuel 24. Then David went out of the cave, probably Saul's now, you know, in, in shouting distance, but not far away. And he called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself 
with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. What a beautiful picture of a merciful and kind and compassionate person who had, from human standards, every reason to kill Saul. He's been told he's the next king. Saul's out to kill him. Saul's not honoring God. Why not? And at least you could call it self-defense. Why not take the life of the one trying to kill you? But David, with great compassion and great mercy, said no. I love that. I think he's a man after God's own heart for a lot of reasons. But this is the number one reason in my mind. How about one more, uh, two more of those, actually, situations Mercy and kindness come out of him. 2 Samuel chapter 9 tells about a time when David showed great compassion to someone named Mephibosheth. I always struggle to say that. Mephibosheth. I talked about him a couple of, oh, maybe a month or so ago when we were talking about friendship and David and Jonathan being best friends. Jonathan being the son of King Saul. David and Jonathan became best friends and... Uh, and David at one point made a promise to always take care of Jonathan's family as best he could. And uh, anyway, skipping forward, at some, at some point later, King Saul and his son Jonathan were both killed in a battle. And um, David then shortly thereafter became king. And he remembered his decade-old promise to his best friend Jonathan. And the Bible says that instead of doing what most kings would do, which is, cut off the bloodline of anybody associated with the former king so as to avoid any potential rebellion or coup later down the road by somebody who says, hey, I'm the rightful heir because I'm bloodline related to Saul, so therefore I should be king. You know, to stop any of that from happening, usually what would happen is the king would kill everybody that was associated with the previous king, assuming he was not part of that bloodline. But David said, I'm not doing that, not at all. In fact, verse 1 of 2 Samuel 9, David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? David not only was willing to show kindness and mercy, he looked for opportunities. He, he asked for opportunities. He sought them out as a man after God's own heart. Well, his men found only this one young man named Mephibosheth who was crippled, He'd been dropped by a nursemaid when he was five, and his feet didn't work anymore. He was handicapped, and yet David brought him into his palace and adopted him as his own. A beautiful picture of compassion, caring for those with special needs, caring for the down and out, the overlooked, the less important, the less likely to be on any poster, you know, about most likely to succeed not someone who is ever going to be able to repay David in any way. There was nothing in it for David, but he chose to show mercy and kindness because, I think, because he's a man after God's own heart who is quick to show kindness and mercy to us. And David was that guy. One more example of this, 2 Samuel 18, third time we see David in a similar light. Um, we read about his son Absalom who tried to kill his father and take over the kingdom. Let me make one point here that you've got to understand. You know, sometimes we make mistakes and we repent of them. 
God forgives us of the sin, but that does not necessarily mean that God removes the consequence. Sometimes you make mistakes and there are still consequences. God forgives you, but there are still consequences. Well, David learned that. He lived that. His mistake with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah, her husband, and all of that, there was a lot of stuff that happened downstream from that that was unpleasant. Part of that was uh, some incest and rape and terrible things, sexual sin that happened in his family. Absalom saw that, was disgusted by that, hated that, presumably became filled with not only bitterness and rage about all of that, but even toward his dad. Because eventually, even though David had repented and become a different guy again, honoring God, Absalom felt like he needed to take over. And he began a revolt. And he sought to have his dad's head. He wanted the kingship for himself. And so he sought to kill his own father and take over the kingdom. And this big revolt happened. And as you read through the scripture, it almost seems like David was almost willing to just kind of give up and say, all right, I love my son too much to fight this battle and kill my son, so I'm going to just let it, I'm just going to lay, lay down and let him have it. It doesn't ever say that, but it almost kind of feels like that as I read through it. But what did happen was his men, David's men, said, no, we've got to stand up and fight. We will protect you. And so this big battle and all these things were happening. But over and over, as you read through the passages in Second Chronicles and, and, and First and Second Kings, you see this happening. David says multiple times, he says, all right, whatever happens as you're fighting the battle out there, don't kill my son Absalom. Please protect and save him. Bring him to me alive. Please, let's win this battle, yes, but don't let Absalom die. Well, unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. Absalom, like my son Ethan, had really long hair, apparently. And as he was riding his horse in the middle of one of these battles, riding fast through some trees, all of a sudden the hair gets stuck in a tree branch, and boom, the horse is gone, and he's hanging there. He drops his sword, hanging by there. He can't get his hair loose. He doesn't have anything to cut it off with. And what do you know? One of David's uh, men come upon him, find him, um, come go and tell somebody else, and that guy comes and finds him and picks up uh, Absalom's sword and runs him through and ends the battle. It's over. The coup is done. David is victorious. He's still king, but his son is dead. Now somebody has to go tell David that. Like, well, you tell him. I'm not telling him. You tell him. No, I don't want to tell him. So finally, somebody goes and tells David, and I want to show you his reaction. Again, remember, his son has been trying to murder him. Try to take, trying to take over the kingship, the, the kingdom, I mean. And you would think there would be part of David that would be happy about what has happened. He's now been saved, and the kingdom is his again. But when he hears the news, here's what the Bible says. 2 Samuel 18, The king was shaken. Shaken. He went to the room over the gateway and wept. In other words, he's crying and weeping before he even gets there. As he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, oh, my son, my son. And this continual weeping comes from his quickness to show compassion and mercy. And as I look at that story and I imagine the love a father has for a son, even a son who's trying to murder him. What incredible compassion and kindness he has. And all of that, in my mind, comes downstream from his being a man after God's own heart. 
a man who is quick to want to show compassion and mercy because he knows that God has shown him compassion and mercy. Over and over we see David showing great mercy, having a heart of compassion similar to Jesus. I mean, think about Jesus. He was on a cross, maybe somewhat like this, after being arrested falsely and accused in all kinds of ways that made no sense, eventually struck and beat and spit on and whipped to a place that he was not even recognizable anymore, this close to death from the, from the beating, and then strung out on this cross and nailed to that, and then hung there to die, and yet still people continued to mock him and laugh at him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Hey, if you're the real king, why don't you come down? And all the while, Jesus could have said the word or snapped his fingers and ended that, turned it all around, put himself healthy on the floor and putting, putting all of those up on the crosses. If he wanted to, he could have done anything. He not only showed restraint in not doing that, but do you remember his words? As all that was happening, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Maybe the most compassionate, merciful statement in the Bible. Who says that? God says that. And a man after God's own heart says things like that. And was shaken when his son, even though he was trying to murder him, was put to death. And I think we need to be shaken when we think about those who are lost and dying without Jesus. And the fact that we have opportunity to not only receive Jesus as our Savior, but an opportunity and a privilege. You could call it a responsibility, but it's really an opportunity to save the lives of others by letting God's gospel be heard by them, by sharing truth with them that can change their life, their eternal life, not just on earth. We need to be shaken to the core, to the point of tears, being on our knees, looking for opportunities, praying, God, please give me opportunity to share your truth with others. Kind of like what happened this morning with the man having a seizure and the police officer who showed up and was angry at God or at least distant from God. I'm out of time, but let me do this. If you have a bulletin, were you handed one when you walked in, the piece of paper maybe by an usher that handed you one? If you have one, will you take it out? Put it in your hand. Get it out. I want you to look at the passages of Scripture that I uh, had Vana put in the bulletin for you. I don't have time to go through them and read them with you. But starting there with Ephesians 4.32, where the Bible says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And all the others, you know, Colossians 3 and Galatians 6 and others that that flow downstream from that. Look at those, and I want to give you some homework. Can I do that? Would you be willing to go home? Maybe it's over lunch. Maybe it's this afternoon or this evening before you go to bed. Would you spend some time looking over, and not just reading, but meditating on, dwelling on, and asking God to speak to you through these verses about His compassion and His mercy to us, and what He says that we should have toward others as well. All of these, the stories of the Good Samaritan and, and verses like 2 Peter 3, 9. You'll see that one there toward the end of that list. You know, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. No, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, 
but everyone to come to repentance. He wants all of us to come to repentance in a place of faith, in a place of relationship with Him, and He wants to use you and me. The most important person to that lost person that you know, maybe it's relative, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's somebody you're yet to meet, just a stranger that you'll bump into and get to know briefly, the most important person to share the gospel, the best equipped person to share the gospel with them is probably not a pastor. It's probably not me. It's probably you. Not because you have all the right answers or all the right words, but because you, and not I, you have the opportunity. You have the relationship. You know them. They are looking you eye to eye. They are listening to you. You have their ear. It is your opportunity not just responsibility, but your opportunity, your privilege to share the truth of God's love with them, to be a man or a woman after God's own heart and say, God, help me to be like David, to be like Jesus, and to recognize the need of others and to share truth with them. Whatever that looks like, Lord, I don't have all the answers. I'm intimidated by those situations. I'm scared. I don't know what to say. But Lord, help me to be bold and willing to try. And then give me your words to share truth with them as best I can. That's what I want you to close with this morning. As the band comes, we're going to sing a song together. And as we do, in fact, would you stand with me? As they come and prepare to lead us in a last song, would you let me lead us in prayer? Because I want all of us to understand how it is that David was called a man after God's own heart. Again, Luke said it was because he was willing to do all uh, all my will. That's what God said of him. But I think that's a broad statement that we need to understand in a more practical way. And I think a lot of the, he was willing to do all I said, means to show compassion and mercy to others. When given that opportunity, look for opportunities to be merciful, to be compassionate, to be loving toward others. Listen, Jesus' second coming is as likely or actually much more likely than even the big one to hit California. Scientists say that's a done deal. It's going to happen at some point again. They could be wrong, I guess. Jesus' second coming, though, there's no wondering about that. It's going to happen. We don't know when, but it is going to happen, and it could be soon. And that will be a great day for those of us who love the Lord have committed ourselves to Him, but it will be a terrible day for those who are not yet walking with Him, who have never surrendered their life to Him. So I want to do this. I want to ask you to close your eyes and bow your head and pray with me. I'll, I'll talk out loud as I pray, and you can pray out loud as you, as you want as well. But may this be our prayer, all of us together. Lord, we stand here before you, flawed and imperfect people, just like David. And God, I pray you help us to be a man or a woman after your heart in similar fashion to what we see David being in various ways, starting with being quick to repent. As he was quick to repent when his sin was brought to the forefront, Lord, help us. When we are faced with our own mistakes and our own um, fallenness, our own struggles, Lord, help us to be quick to repent. And if there be anybody in this room today who does not yet know you, who has never said, Lord, I'm all yours. I don't know really what it looks like to be a Christian, but I want to do what I can. I want to trust you with my whole heart. I want to trust and obey. I want to 
surrender to you. Lord, if there be anybody in that boat today, would you lead them to take a step of faith, I guess multiple steps, and just walk down here up front and say that and let me or Rob or Kent or somebody else up here pray with them and talk about their next steps. Talk to them about your love and your mercy. Pray with them. Talk to them. Share with them what baptism's about. Lord, would you just lay upon their heart the need to just step forward? For the rest of us, Lord, who've already been there and done that, oh God, would you break our heart with what breaks yours? Would you help us to resist the temptation to live life focused on me, myself, and I, and to instead become a person that looks for opportunity like David looked for Mephibosheth? Help us to look for those that we can show kindness and mercy to. Lord, would you please open our eyes to those that are lost and hurting around us. I know we can't meet all the needs. We can't fix every situation. But Lord, help us to fix the one or the two that come our way that we can, that you can use us to make a difference with. Break our hearts, Lord, for what breaks yours. Help us to care about what you care about. And help us to leave this place focused on your grace and mercy, saying thank you for it, but being quick to want to share it with others as well. That is our prayer, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name, your Son and our Savior, that we all pray. And everybody together said...